Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson, and Aaron Miller, my co-host, is back from his travels in Africa. Uh, so we're grateful to have him back with us. Uh, we did a couple of weeks of uh, switching up the format a little bit with a couple of interviews. If you haven't listened to those yet, I encourage you to go back and listen to them. Uh, two weeks ago, we had an interview with Ryan Wright, who's the CMO at Cobalt, a music startup that's changing the way that uh, money gets back to the artists from uh, when music's played on various digital streaming services and other places. And then last week, I had a conversation with Christopher Mims, who's the tech columnist at the Wall Street Journal, uh, about several of his recent columns and, and various other things that we talked about. So hopefully you found those interested, interesting if you have listened to them. And uh, if you haven't, then go back and have a listen. They were both pretty good. Uh, but we're grateful to have Aaron back with us. We're, we're almost back onto our normal format again. Um, we're going to not quite do the question of the week and, uh, and weekly pick that we normally do, but we are going to do a news roundup to kick things off. Uh, and we'll talk about a couple of Apple-related topics at the beginning in the form of uh, Apple's investment in DD, the Chinese ride-sharing service, and uh, also uh, Tim Cook's visit to India this week. Uh, and then we'll also talk about Microsoft's sale of um, some of the feature phone assets that it acquired from Nokia to Foxconn and some of the other deals that went along with that. Uh, and then our major discussion today will be about the announcements from Google's I.O. developer conference this week, which uh, is where I've been for the last several days, and I'm still out in California right now. And uh, so we'll spend most of the time talking about mostly the keynote announcements there, so things like the Google Assistant and the Google Home device, uh, Allo and Duo, these two new communications apps. We'll talk about Android N, and uh, we'll talk about Google, uh, excuse me, Android Wear. We'll talk about Daydream, which is Google's uh, VR system and uh, set of specs that goes with that. And we'll talk at the end briefly about uh, the fact that Chrome OS can now run Android apps, or will shortly, uh, and what that means. So th those will be the topics for the rest of the podcast. And then hopefully next week we'll be back to our normal format again. One of the things we're thinking about doing is having Aaron share some of the things he learned about uh, technology use in uh, Africa and Ghana specifically, which is where he spent the last few weeks. So that may be our, our kind of question of the week topic for next week. We'll see. Um, so with that, let's let's kick off with the, the news roundup, and we'll start out with this acquisition, or not acquisition, investments, excuse me, of about a billion dollars by Apple in Chinese ride-sharing service, DD. Uh, Aaron, do you want to kick us off on that one? Yeah, I, uh, I, I think I remember on Twitter you had said something like, I'm gone from Twitter, I'm gone from the internet for four hours, and Apple makes a billion-dollar investment. Um, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a big surprise, I think, to everybody. I... I, you know, I think when the Beats acquisition happened, it was everybody sort of immediately knew where Apple was going with that in terms right. of a streaming music product, which had been rumored for a while anyway. Yes. And so there was less of a surprise there. I think the surprise with the Beats acquisition was mostly the price um, being over a couple billion. But, uh, but this one is a definite surprise. It seems like it, it seems like most of the commentators have settled in on the idea that this is more of a PR move in China than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, I'm skeptical of that. I don't think Apple, I, I mean, I, I don't think Apple would waste an opportunity for the PR to also have, you know, product potential. And uh, for example, I think mapping in China is going to be a, a huge and necessary undertaking if they want iPhone sales to grow in China. They've just right. got to have great mapping there. And Didi is a fantastic way to get access to that, all that information. 
And so <clears throat> I think I think we're actually going to see a half a dozen ways that this is going to spin out into useful product improvements for Apple, not just a PR improvement in the country. Yeah, that's 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 I think what this deal has in common with the Beats deal too, because with the Beats deal, everybody was looking for the one reason why they did this. So you know, was this about music streaming services? Was it about boosting accessory sales? Was it about bringing Jim, Jimmy Iovine on board to negotiate deals or whatever? You know, so I saw a lot of analysis back when the Beats deal was announced that was kind of tried to find the single reason why it made sense, and ultimately, I think the reason why it made sense was it combined those things. Uh, and I think, you know, this DD investment is another one that checks several boxes at once for Apple. And absolutely, there's a PR angle to it, you know, but Apple's not going to spend a billion dollars just for PR. Um, you know, it, it definitely is a sign that Apple's serious about China, it allows Apple to say, you know, we really want to spend money in China, benefit the Chinese economy and so on. But there's the mapping stuff that you talked about, which I think is a big part of it. There's, you know, learning about how people use cars and, and you know, all the insights you get on cars in general from such an investment, and that obviously can help with Apple's efforts in the car space. Uh, and the other thing is um, that, you know, there are ways in which Apple's devices and, and services can be used by DD. So whether it's, you know, issuing drivers with iPhones, as Uber does in some markets, um, for, you know, navigation and, and for the, the driver side of the Uber app, whether it's mapping, um, you know, as mapping apps for drivers as those improve, uh, in China, you know, there's a whole range of other things. Apple Pay obviously could be relevant there too. There's so many other ways in which there can be some synergy. So it's unusual though, and that's the other big thing about this investment is this is such a departure from what Apple usually does. You know, and we talked several weeks ago about corporate venture capital and how Apple is not a company that engages in it. And yet, you know, here you suddenly have out of nowhere this big billion dollar deal. And it's not VC structured necessarily, but it's, you know, uh, it's the kind of thing Apple doesn't normally do. Apple doesn't normally even make big acquisitions. Um, you know, the Beats one was an exception, and there have only been a couple of that sort of scale, and yet this is a billion dollars too, which is another departure. It's in China, where I don't think Apple's ever made an acquisition before either. So, so many things about this deal that kind of came out of left field, and that was really kind of what I was re responding to with that Twitter comment about being away for a couple of hours and coming back and, and reading this is like so unexpected. Um, you know, that it, it's taken a while for people to pass, I think, and I, I suspect we'll be doing that for a while to come. Carry on. <clears throat> I was just going to say I totally agree, and I think we're going to be surprised. I, I think we are doing a lot of speculation, and yeah, that's natural, you know, following such big news like this, especially unexpected news. But I, I think we're going to be surprised by some things that come out of this over the next six years, six months to twelve months. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I know there may well be more stuff like this, which would be very interesting to watch too. Um, so the other part of this kind of story about Apple in Asia was Tim Cook actually went out to China. Um, there's been less coverage of that, um, but he then spent quite a bit of time in India this week as well. And Apple made a couple of announcements around investments in India. Very different nature of those announcements. It wasn't big investment in existing company, but it was about setting up sort of development centers and various other things like that in a couple of different Indian cities uh, and some other investments there. And so. You know, big commitment. India is obviously a country Tim Cook's talked about a lot in earnings calls recently and really tried to talk up. And we've talked about that on previous podcast episodes too, in terms of you know the comparability and the differences with China. Um, but you know, making a, a huge set of investments there. There's been talk about two retail stores opening soon and things like that as well. So a whole a whole load of different things being announced there in India. What was your take on all of that? 
Uh, two thoughts or two things stood out to me. One is it's really evident from what so recently Apple had been trying to sell used iPhones, like refurbished iPhones mm -hmm. in India. And they apparently there's a lot of bureaucracy there. And so apparently they had to apply for permission to do this and, and their application was denied. And I think that was a signal of just how low Apple's political capital is there. I mean, I got the from what I've read about it, it seemed like it was definitely just a it's a decision that could have gone either way. And so Apple just didn't have the political capital to get the decision to go the way they wanted. Um, I think the PR tour has been a stroke of genius there. I, you know, it's been strange, like reading news about Tim Cook at, you know, dinner parties with Bollywood actors, because that's not at all his personality. He's not the, right. you know, he's not the kind of guy who sort of Hobnobs. seeks out yeah hobnobs he doesn't seek out the fame and he doesn't seem to seek out being with famous people because of his position <clears throat> and so clearly this is about endearing apple to to the country and i think it's really smart and i think it's gonna i think it's really gonna pay off the other thing that stood out to me was apple establishing that app incubator i think they put 400 million into it or something like that um and uh, this app incubator that they've set up in India, I also think was a stroke of genius because China has not had a shortage of iPhone apps. Right. Like customized for the Chinese market, but it appears that that's been one of the problems for the iPhone in India right. is that there aren't a lot of apps customized for the Indian market and Apple realizes that this is a problem and so they've created an environment where they can help cultivate more Indian-centric apps. And I, I also think that was a brilliant move. And, you know, it's funny because <clears throat> if it hadn't been for the DD investment, I think people would be making a much bigger deal out of this app incubator because it is also a departure for Apple to do something like this. And mm -hmm. it wasn't a billion, so it wasn't quite as impressive as the DD investment. But, I mean, it was close to half a billion, and that's, uh, you know, that's not chump change. And so... I think uh, I, I think Apple has made really smart moves over the last two weeks in India that uh, I, I think are very encouraging as far as iPhone growth there is concerned. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it'll be very interesting to watch that as well going forward. Um, you know, it's it's clearly a market Apple cares a lot about, but one, as you say, where they've had some real significant barriers, and, I, and you do wonder to what extent these investments are the result of conversations with leaders in India about, okay, what, what do we need to do in order to change this? Uh, and to what extent Apple's just kind of speculatively saying, we're going to do this and then go back to the table and say, hey, look what we've been doing. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see if it changes at all that relationship with the Indian government. Because the reasons for disallowing the refurbished phones things were ridiculous. It was about sort of environmental concerns or something, which is kind of crazy when you consider you know, these these phones going back into people's hands and being used for another few years rather than going to a landfill is obviously much better for the environment. So um, it's all pretty spurious stuff and, and kind of reeks of protectionism. Um, so the third topic we want to talk about with the news roundup was the uh, sale of Microsoft's feature phone business, previously acquired from Nokia a few years back, uh, to Foxconn, and then a variety of other deals around all of this, which uh, had more to do with licensing of brands and so on. Um, but Aaron, I know you had you know a take on this as somewhat different focus uh, from what most of the discussion has been, which has been about this is another sign that Microsoft's phone strategy is kind of not panned out. But you wanted to focus on a different element. I, I it's it's the looking ahead that I think is so interesting. I mean, we've talked about Foxconn potentially moving into its own brand before in the podcast, and 
And this is a, just, I think, a brilliant entry point for Foxconn. I mean, it, they're, they're going to be really good at manufacturing cheaply, and that is an essential skill if you're going to be in the feature phone business because these phones are primarily used in the developing world, so these have to be really inexpensive. And it creates an opportunity for Foxconn to build a brand and then move up the value chain. And I, right. I, I think we're going to watch this play out, and I won't be surprised if it happens even relatively rapidly, where two to three years from now we're talking about Foxconn smartphones uh, in the same way we're talking about Xiaomi or the other, you know, um, sort of <clears throat> smartphone upstarts um, coming out of Asia. And so I, I, I think it's way more fascinating on the Foxconn side and what lays ahead than sort of the looking backward at Microsoft stumble as far as the Nokia acquisition goes. Because I think everybody kind of knows that already, that mm -hmm. the Nokia acquisition didn't work out the way Microsoft hoped. And so that's not exactly news. Um, that, you know, there was, there was going to be a sale of assets at some point. I think we all kind of knew that was coming. I think right. what's more interesting is that Foxconn was a buyer. Yeah, yeah, no, that's very interesting. And, and obviously there's some precedent for these companies that start out making phones for other people eventually growing their own brands. And, you know, HTC is one of the better examples of that in phones specifically in that they started out making phones for, say, AT&T and other carriers under their brands. And then only later did the HTC brand emerge. You know, Foxconn's different in that it makes phones at such a high volume as purely as a manufacturer. So it's not just a white labeling operation, but it's, you know, it's a contract manufacturer for others who do all the design and so on. But, um, you know, there are, are precedents for this stuff. And it would be very interesting to see, you know, with the other acquisitions that they've made recently that we've talked about previously, um, you know, they're, they're putting together a very interesting set of assets to, to really go at it um, with their own brand potentially over time. Well, let's move on from the news roundup to our main topic for today, which is Google's I.O. developer conference and the announcements that were made there. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff to cover. Um, you know, one of the features of this event and uh, Microsoft's build event in particular is the sheer breadth of what's announced there. And this time, you know, we were essentially missing anything on enterprise stuff, which has been a big focus of previous I.O. So we even cut back on some of the topics that are normally covered at these events. But even so, there was a very wide range of announcements, and we're going to talk about a lot of those. Um, and I think what we'll probably do is tackle the keynote more or less in order. Uh, and the keynote really started with Sundar Pichai talking through some of Google's philosophy and so on, but then going into talking about what's being referred to now as the Google Assistant. There's an interesting capitalization there. Google's the only word that's capitalized in that phrase, the Google Assistant. Uh, so assistant isn't going to be a brand by itself. It's going to be the Google Assistant, and um, you know, that's interesting in and of itself. But this is really the first time that Google's starting to bring together a lot of things that have been fairly fragmented and um, uh, sort of spread out through different Google products. Uh, you know, Google Now, Google Voice Search, standard Google Search, uh, and a whole variety of other Google products which haven't had a single kind of umbrella brand or a way to be able to talk about them. And it's always been awkward. Uh, we, we've had this problem in the past when we've talked about some of this stuff on the podcast is you can talk about Siri, you can talk about Cortana, you can even talk about Alexa and Amazon, um, but you had no similar kind of umbrella brand to talk about everything that Google was doing in this area. And so the Google Assistant starts to bring some of that stuff together. 
and then you have this Google Home device, which is going to be an equivalent of kind of Amazon Echo, a device that sits in your home and which basically is kind of the physical embodiment of this Google Assistant, you know, a way for you to interact with it and ask it questions, make requests of it and so on. And Google had quite an effective demo video during the keynote that showed how it might work in the, in the morning with a typical family and so on. Um, so lots of interesting stuff there, you know, some of it obviously widely expected. There have been reports for a while that Google's working on a, an Echo competitor. Um, what was your take on all of this? I, you know, it's it's shoring up the idea that that uh, that intelligent uh, assistants are the next platform war to come. I, I mean, you know, platform shifts are not all that frequent in the relatively short history of you know consumer technology. And you know, when we moved from desktops to mobile. There were a lot of really powerful companies on the desktop side, like Microsoft or Intel, that were caught flat-footed on the shift to mobile. Um, and the the power really is in the platform, right? I mean, that's how companies become so massive is because they develop the platform that everybody wants. And this idea of an intelligent assistant as the next platform, I don't know. It's it's taking shape for me. I think I I think I've been skeptical of it in the past personally, you know, just anecdotally, but now I'm starting to to see how, you know, this idea of an assistant as a platform kind of woven into everything you do. I mean, in the same way that, you know, we went from browsers to apps. I could I could picture a lot of the shift going from apps to assistants. Um you know, being able to get more sophisticated weather information, for example, is a low-hanging fruit there. But uh, something where, you know, there wouldn't be as much value in checking an app if you can ask a very specific question and get the very specific answer for, you know, what weather is expected at what time of day and what location. And, uh, and I mean, and like I said, that's a trivial thing. And so the idea of this like intelligent assistant as a platform that you can access through chat, that you can access through voice, um, you know, I, I think it's pretty compelling. And um, as somebody who more frequently uses Siri than any of the others, you know, 95% of the time, Siri just feels way, way behind and in, in terms of, and primarily because of interoperability. Right, because if you're going to be a, opening up the APIs to third parties would make a big difference. If you're yeah, because you have to do it if you're going to be a platform. And I don't think Apple right. has thought about Siri <clears throat> as a platform, but clearly Google and Amazon are, and yeah. and Microsoft with all of the stuff they announced with bots. And so, you know, this is uh, this may be the next major platform that's baked into your car, that's baked into you know, you know, iMessage or or you know whatever chat app you use. I, th I think this this could be potentially a really big deal, and it's going to be hard. And a company like Google feels better positioned to be good at this than just about anybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the key here is um, that this isn't just about a device in the home. This is about assistants that are ubiquitous, that live in the different devices that we use, and that the home device just is one instantiation of that. And you know, that's the interesting thing with Amazon is Amazon started with that device and is now spreading Alexa to other things. And uh, so you have, you know, this um, dot and tap, these two other versions of Echo that are slightly cheaper for different scenarios. So that you have potentially more than one of these things throughout your home. Uh, you've got some of the Alexa type functionality showing up in some of their Fire TV devices. There have been reports that they're working on a tablet that has Alexa capabilities as well. So 
they're coming from the home device and kind of spreading out from there. Their big challenge, frankly, is that they don't have a position in the smartphone. Obviously, their smartphone effort floundered and, and flopped. Um, you know, they do have apps on other smartphones, and obviously there's an Alexa app that goes with the Echo on iOS and Android today, and that could become kind of an assistant on its own. But the challenge is always these things are second-class citizens on uh, platforms owned by other people, and so it's never going to be as effective. And I think that's going to be the biggest challenge for, for Amazon. With Google, of course, they really have massive presence on uh, Android devices to some extent, on iOS devices. And they can obviously leverage that now into the home with everything they've learned from that and all the apps they already have. And so they, they feel like they're in a very powerful position. You know, Apple obviously has Siri on, Siri on iOS devices. It's probably going to land on iOS 10 this summer. Uh, probably see that announced at WWDC. There is that potential for opening up Siri to, with APIs to third parties. It's, that's one of the single most interesting questions, I think, for Apple right now is, you know, do you keep Siri as something that can only work with first-party things so that it kind of reinforces the value of Apple's built-in apps like Apple Music? You know, as of right now, one of the benefits of Apple Music is it's the only uh, music service available on iOS that you can control with Siri. Um, you know, you can't control Spotify, you can't control Google Music, you can't control Pandora. You know, if you open up the APIs, then suddenly that advantage goes away. And I think that's the reason why Apple hasn't done this stuff so far, is it's, it's a way to kind of preserve the advantage that Apple's first-party apps have on its platforms. But it's becoming increasingly clear that you know, these assistants are most valuable, as you were saying, when they are open to third parties, when there is that interoperability, where they become a platform. Um, and so it'd be very interesting to see if they do open that up at WWEC. Uh, there was this, a third-party assistant called Viv that was demoed recently, and the, the huge part of the value of that is, and interesting, that was created by some of the same people that created Siri at, at SRI. Um, and the, the big part of the value there is that it works with lots and lots of third-party applications. So. That's going to be one of the big questions. The other big question for Apple, of course, is do they need to do an Echo or home-like device? You know, they have the Apple TV, but it's not something that's always on. It, it may well not be in the room where are spending a lot of the time. Uh, it needs a screen to really be useful um, because it doesn't talk back to you for today. So, you know, do they need to, to have some other device for the home? That would be a logical next device for Apple to launch. Um, so all kinds of interesting questions there. Um, well, I wrote a piece about... Uh, all this for Tech Opinions this week, by the way, which we'll link to as well, which covers a lot of this. And just to jump in on the on the device thing, I think this has the potential to be the killer app for smartwatches. I think, you know, if you have a really, because the problem with the watch is the interface. I mean, that's, you know, that's the core issue with the watch being useful. And, you know, it, when Siri, when the watch, when the Apple Watch first came out, people talked about how Siri seemed to be a little bit faster and a little bit smarter. But there are still issues where, you know, it's maybe a delay when you raise your wrist to say, hey, Siri. And so it's not quite fluid. But I mean, if the, the wristwatch seems like a natural best place, better than, you know, like elect the Alexa, you know, cylinder sitting on your kitchen counter, even if you had a smartwatch that was essentially your principal access to your intelligent assistant, that that to me feels like the app that the killer app for smartwatches that makes everybody want to buy it. And so for Apple to keep Siri closed feels like winning a battle to lose the war. Right. Um, because this, because if Siri is accessible to all kinds of third parties and Siri all of a sudden, you know, reaches new levels of power by orders of magnitude and all of that's on your watch, 
you know, where, with you all the time, really convenient and close, that, that to me feels pretty amazing. Yeah, and I think the biggest challenge for that is just that Siri doesn't work that well on either phones or watches in terms of voice recognition. I mean, we've all got stories about asking Siri to do something and getting a completely different um, interpretation of what we actually said. Um, and I think that's one of the things that the Echo does very well. And we, we had one in our home for a few weeks and just to try it out. And, uh, you know, it, I, I didn't find a lot of utility in it as a device, but the voice recognition was phenomenal. You know, pretty much always knew exactly what I was trying to say. And there are certain advantages that come with a much bigger device that's dedicated to, you know, having a, a significant, you know, set of microphones that can pick up uh, sound from different directions and do it really well. And it's tough with a phone or a, a smartwatch that's primarily about other things like display and so on. You're going to squeeze the microphones and that technology into a much smaller space, and it's never going to be quite as effective. And so, it's one of the big challenges for Apple is can they make their voice recognition, in particular, good enough? On these smaller devices, that they can compete um, with, you know, something like an Echo or a Home that's that's dedicated and devoted to just that one thing, and therefore, you know, has the hardware to to be able to do that really well. Um, the other question that I think is really interesting around all of this is, you know, these home devices, and and one of the things that Google talked about was, you know, this thing will get to know you over time, uh, with your permission. They were very careful to add, um, but. Who is you in the context of a family? Um, you know, if there's six people in my home, how does it know which of us is talking to it at any given point in time? If I say what's on my calendar, can it access all our calendars? Does it need to have access to, you know, six different calendars potentially to to answer that question? Um, you know, does it answer my questions differently from the way that it answers somebody else's questions? And so there's this whole set of questions about profiles and so on for different users within the home. <coughs> That I think you know these devices have to deal with, which say a more personal device like a smartphone or a, a smartwatch doesn't have to deal with. And there wasn't any information on that in the keynote yesterday or on Wednesday. Uh, I'm very curious to see if that's something that we get more detail about as the device gets closer to launching, because it's going to be a key thing uh, over time as people start asking more personal questions rather than just general kind of what's the weather, what's the traffic type questions. Well, and I don't think that <clears throat> the winner, if if intelligent assistants really do become the new, the next platform, I don't think the winner can have just one device for accomplishing its goals. It needs to be able to work on smartwatches as much as it does on oh, absolutely <clears throat> on things like Home or, or Alexa with its you know <clears throat> mm-hmm. with its speaker and and so the problem with that obviously is that increases the complexity because. I mean, already it's a problem if I have my iPad and iPhone sitting next to each other and I say, hey, Siri. Right. <clears throat> like, how does, you know, they don't know which one. And Apple doesn't seem to care yet about, you know, one of them listening over the other. In fact, that's my biggest concern with Siri coming to the Mac because it'll have the same always listening feature right. almost almost undoubtedly. And so if I say, hey, Siri, you know, I, and I can picture, you know, technical ways to solve this. I mean, you've got, mm-hmm. you know, Bluetooth you know, and, and, so, yeah. and handoff and all that. Kind of, but even the handoff has problems mm-hmm. in terms of device preference for any given moment. Right. Yeah. And, and, the, and, and it's not always going to be easy. I mean, what if I'm sitting in a chair in my office reading something on my iPad and I say, hey, Siri, you know, how does it know? Like they'll have to think through all the different possible conditions right. so they can right. figure that out. Um, you know, the 
the you'll need a lot there and and i think what i was thinking of when you were talking through you know having multiple profiles for a single home this also opens up a whole new privacy can of worms um you know because you said that google only that 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 google home only get to know you better with your permission right um this is this really is going to be a new can of worms that is going to get a whole bunch of people to, to freak out and you're going to hear horror stories and, <laughs> and, and they're, you know, they're going to be, you know, stories about the NSA trying to tap people's Google right. assistants <laughs> to find yeah, out what they're I'm asking sure to Google's, do. Google's very aware of those concerns. <clears throat> I mean, they all got raised with Nest, for example, which was their first device that kind of got stuck on your wall in your home. And when they acquired that, you know, there were a lot of concerns about all of that. And they addressed that largely by saying this would be very separate from the rest of Google. Obviously, the whole point of Google Home is it's not separate, that it's tightly integrated right. into the rest of what Google knows about you. Uh, and so those questions are going to come up. What was interesting, it was throughout the keynote, and I think this is a good segue to talking about the two communications apps that they announced, but um, throughout the keynote, uh, there was a lot of emphasis on security. So they talked about end-to-end encryption and things like that, very little on privacy. Um, and, you know, in contrast to Apple, which has really been hammering away at privacy. And, and it surprised me a little bit because there are inevitably going to be those concerns about something like home. Uh, and I would have expected them to at least address that a little bit. And the only real concession to that was this, this throwaway line about with your permission, of course, when they talked about Google Home getting to know you over time and getting to know more about you. Um, well, so it's something I'll need to address more. It's an advertising goldmine. I, yeah. I mean, you know, when... Because if I am at home and I say, you know, and if I if I say, you know, okay, Google, I need, um, you know, remind me to buy milk, you know, I guarantee you, Google wants to show me an ad about, you know, from some advertiser that I'll go and buy their milk at their grocery store instead of a different one, right? And I might even push out a coupon, right? And right. And it's it's a classic tension. It's the same problem now with doing a web search. You know, you go to Home Depot to this just happened to me. So I go to Home Depot to look at lawnmowers, and and now everywhere I turn in Facebook, you know, in my web browser, right. like I'm seeing yeah. advertisements for yeah, for lawnmowers, ads, yeah. right, mm-hmm. from Home Depot, and it's not it's not super helpful. It's just creepy, and yeah. it's a hard balance to strike. You, you know, target advertising in its best form is genuinely useful, but I think Americans in particular, especially private about that kind of thing mm-hmm. and suspicious of it. And, uh, and so these intelligent assistants, I just don't know how you get them to work without massive computing power to make really sophisticated, statistically driven responses. And <clears throat> to do that, you have to know what people are saying and to a certain extent who's saying them, those yeah. things. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Uh, let's move on to talking about the two communications apps. And this is an area where Google's largely failed, let's be honest. I mean, they, they've had Hangouts, which has been a sort of modest success. I know people who use it for work, for example. And, and you know, um, my wife's family used Hangouts for a while to, to organize some sort of group, uh, family group conversations that we were doing for a while. It was kind of painful. It was, it was At the time, it was the only one that could easily and free do um, group video. Um, but you know, it's it's a product that's really kind of languished and, and hasn't done all that well, and yet you know, there wasn't even Google's only effort in this area. They've had a whole bunch of different efforts around messaging, around uh, they had Google Talk back in the day, they've had Google Voice for voice calls and so on. They've had this series of disjointed things that were kind of owned by different teams within Google that, that didn't really work together, and 
you know, a bit like what we talked about with the Google Assistant, didn't have a consistent brand or anything like that. And so, you know, having had Hangouts now as kind of their biggest success over the last few years, even though, as I said, that hasn't been a huge success for them, they're now reinventing things again. And so we have these two new communications apps, one of which is called Allo, with its a messaging app, uh, and the other of which is called Duo, which is a sort of FaceTime equivalent, uh, sort of video calling and that kind of thing. And the main gimmick there is uh, that you see the person who's calling you before you pick up so you can kind of see what they're up to as a sort of incentive to pick up and uh, presumably it could also be a disincentive um, right. if you saw somebody in a scenario where you weren't really all that keen to engage with them um, but the point here is Google's kind of trying again with this stuff and obviously with Allo they're tapping into this broader messaging trend um, and uh, some of the things that we talked about previously around bots and so on that would be a part of that so even though home as a device seems like the perfect embodiment of the Google Assistant, it's not going to be the first place it shows up. The first place it shows up is actually going to be within Allo, uh, where it'll be available as a sort of assistant to you in the course of a conversation where you'll uh, be able to call on uh, Google to help you book a table or uh, a flight or, or a hotel or whatever else it might be in the context of a, a conversation with friends. Um, what was your take on all of that, Aaron? I have a hard time picturing a virtual assistant baked into a chat app bringing people into it. Um, yep. It's it's the people you know that bring you to the chat app. Yes. I mean, you yep. know, my family used WhatsApp for a while, and because I have a, a brother with a security background, he encouraged us all to switch to Telegram, and we all moved together to Telegram, and it had very, very little to do with any other features. And in the end, most of us probably didn't even care about the security features. But one of us did, and he convinced everybody to move. And so it was the people, right, that got us right. all the, to switch platform to switch chat platforms, and and that you know. It, so I have a hard time picture, imagining, <clears throat> excuse me, imagining people moving to Allo. Just it doesn't feel like it's got the right message to get people to move over. Um, and that's what it takes. It takes the people you care about using the same platform. Um, I think with Duo. You know, having just been to Ghana where internet connections are, you know, mind-numbingly slow, it is compelling to have faster video chat available, or mm -hmm. I should say more efficient video chat available. I, d I do think that the video preview thing is really creative, but that seems like a trivial thing for other, right. uh, you know, for other video chat apps to, to duplicate. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, this, this didn't feel important or prominent enough or interesting enough to actually get people to change. And social has been a problem for Google from the start uh, through all the different iterations of them trying to crack the social nut. And this doesn't feel like it's, it's, it's going to help much in that regard. Yeah, no, I, it's one of those things. I, I was kind of, every time I say duo, I want to finish the phrase by saying do over because this is like a do over in both these areas for, for Google. And, uh, then that's the problem. They're kind of resetting everything all over again. You know, you finally built some traction around Hangouts, and now you've kind of reset the clock again with a completely new app. And um, it just feels like they keep trying and failing. And, and I absolutely agree with you what you said about Allo, that it's really about the network effects that come from all your friends being there that, that drive you to use something like this. And, you know, for all that it might be very clever and so on, and from a feature perspective, that's not what draws people in. Right. Uh, and at this point, the messaging market is so mature that everybody's everybody's glommed on to whatever works best for them. And, and the other thing is, because it's cross-platform, uh, it's not even like the Android equivalent of iMessage or something, where it's like, now this is going to be really good messaging baked into Android. This is a 
third-party app that you'll download. And so it um, doesn't even have that benefit going for it, where it's kind of the thing that ties you to your other Android friends um, or a thing that's sort of tightly integrated into the platform. You know, I would say one other thing about Allo. I, I think the idea of having intelligence baked into a chat app is a good idea, but I think focusing on usefulness is the wrong way to encourage people to switch. I think the focus should be on fun. I think, for example, if you had a robot built into Allo that would take our conversation and, and, and make it funny, for example, or make it interesting or gamify it somehow, that's the sort of thing that would get people to switch, right? Because, because then it's about having this you know, fun encounter with somebody that you love and care about instead of, you know, like the, the problem with the way they're approaching with Allo is the idea would be that midstream you sort of talk to a robot for, for right. whatever reason, mm -hmm. right, in a way that is supposedly useful. But we already have that ability in chat apps on our phones because we can just switch apps in the middle of a conversation and mm -hmm. get the information we need. And so... So it's really not exactly that much more incentivizing to be able to check a flight time right? using a, a robot in the middle of a chat versus just popping over to the app where it would normally check flight times. And so it, it makes a lot more sense to take that intelligence and make it fun, make it engaging or entertaining. Um, that would get people to switch, but uh, mm -hmm. that doesn't seem to be the way they're looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's odd. It's it's funny. I mean, it, there there were some clever features in there. Um, you know, there's a, they're using their kind of machine learning and artificial intelligence stuff to, you know, somebody sends you a picture. Here, it, you know, it, it's going to auto generate three possible responses, like you know, a cute dog, I like dogs, or I really like your Bernese Mountain dog. You know, kind of like it can recognize what kind of breed of dog it is, but. Do we really want our messaging apps to basically communicate <laughs> right. on our behalf? I mean, that was the, the reaction that I kind of had to that particular demo was just like, great, you're going to take all the personality out of my interactions with my friends by basically suggesting these canned responses. You well, know? and then you and I could just set our phones down and they could have a right. conversation just together without talk us. To each other, talk amongst yourselves for a while, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just, it's hilarious. I mean, you know, there's value to canned responses. You know, somebody asks me, do you want to go out at seven or eight, you know, pre-populating results that say seven and eight and letting me pick, great. But just the idea that I'd respond to your picture with a canned response just feels really ungenuine. Um, you know, and it's just like, are we trying to make our interactions with our friends as efficient or as meaningful as possible? Right. There was very little there that would make it more meaningful. I mean, there's some gimmicky stuff like, you know, whispering and shouting, kind of you basically change the size of the text to indicate louder or talk, or uh, quieter talking. But um, you know, like stickers like everybody else has an emoji and so on. But, uh, you know, there just wasn't a lot there that made me think, you know, oh, yeah, this is going to be massive. I just feel like this is going to be another flop. Um, and, you know, as the first place where people would see assistant, most people just aren't going to see it. And it just seems like a funny way to start that off rather than baking it into Android or something else. But, of course, challenge with baking it to Android is most people wouldn't get it for a year. So, um, you know, they're, they're challenged in terms of getting this stuff to people, even though the concept of the assistant seems really good. Yeah. Um, let's move on to talking about Android N. And this was an interesting year in that, um, you know, Google normally reveals a new version of Android uh, at I.O. And this year they revealed it months ago. Um, they gave a preview, I think it was back in February was when they started with it. Well, at least that's when they started sending some code to some of their OEM partners um, and basically then opened up a preview for Android developers to start playing around with and so on. And, and so announced, you know, some of the biggest features back then. 
and that made the section of the keynote that dealt with Android N feel pretty flat because there was uh, not a lot that was new there. There was a lot that we already knew because, frankly, it's been out there for a while now, and there's a pretty solid developer preview out there at this point that's you know working very well and is a good indicator of what the platform's going to look like. Um, and so it just meant that they had a section where they kind of recapped a lot of this stuff for an audience that surely was aware of it already. Um, so that was kind of interesting. And I, I we had a, some analyst sessions with Google on the sidelines, as it were, of the event. And so I asked Dave Burke, who runs Android, kind of why did you do it this way? Um, and really, he said, what the challenge is with the way the timing has worked so far is that the release gets out so late in the year that flagship phones that are due in the second half of the year basically miss it. Um, and so you don't get flagships landing until the next year. Um, and so by pushing everything up, they're hoping that the flagships that launch in the fall, and you didn't mention specific names, which you're probably thinking about like the Galaxy Note series, for example, from Samsung that normally gets a fall update. Uh, those would ship with the end release on them this time around. And so you basically move forward the point when some of these flagships start to hit. Obviously, the single biggest flagship in the Android calendar ships in the spring. That would be the Samsung Galaxy S line, and obviously doesn't help with that. Um, but that was a big reason, was to try to get more flagships out the same year that the release launches to try to uh, speed the adoption of the new version of Android. So oh, it was interesting to hear that from him. Um, and obviously, there's another element, which is about getting feedback from developers earlier in the process so that uh, that can be baked back into the release. But um, one of the big things was the flagship thing. Um, the biggest thing with Android N is, is VR and Daydream and so on. And so I think it's worth talking about that next. Aaron, did you kind of follow that part of things? And did you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, I did a bit. I, you know, I, the... I think it was Ben Baharin that commented that, uh, um, you know, smartphones as a as a as a device for VR is going to limit the usefulness of VR, or I should say the immersiveness of VR. But it may just be good enough, and I think there's truth to that. I think, well, it, the truth is, VR for me, I feel like will have made it if I'm sitting in an airport. And the guy sitting next to me has a VR headset on, you know, and, and that stops right. becoming weird mm -hmm. <laughs> because or, or on the plane, you know, the plane, mm -hmm. I think it's more likely than just sitting, you know, in the terminal waiting to board. Right. But, but I think when that, when we get to that point, when that stops feeling weird, uh, I think VR is as, as a smartphone extension will, will actually make sense and be useful. Um, and I'm not sure that's an easy hurdle to overcome. I mean, we saw Google mm -hmm. Glass have all kinds of hurdles because um, it was sort of creepy, the idea that, that somebody wasn't really paying attention to you as they were looking at you. Right. VR at least has, right. the, has the advantage of not, you know, creating this weird sense of divided attention. But, um, but <clears throat> you know, I don't know, Bluetooth earsets, I guess they have the divided attention problem too. But, you know, Bluetooth earpieces struggled for a long time. And I think ultimately failed to gain full social acceptance. And VR, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe maybe the idea that when somebody has their VR headset on means it's like they're just watching TV or something and you right. don't to not feel like you're supposed to be engaged with them will mm -hmm. we'll take away the weirdness. But uh, but we, we have to get to that moment before where somebody can sit in an airport terminal with a VR headset on and not look weird to everybody else there. 
Because if we don't yeah. get there, there are going to be too many people that are self-conscious to actually use it. Right, right. And I, I think in reality, I think most of the um, VR experiences that people have are going to be in their homes for today in the situations where they would otherwise be watching a TV or watching a show on a tablet or something like that. It's, it's, a, it's a largely solitary experience. There's some entertainment value to watching somebody else doing something in VR. Um, but for the most part, it's a solitary experience, um, which I think we've talked about a little bit before. What's interesting, I think, about the <coughs> excuse me, the daydream announcements is, um, you know, out there right now, when it comes to smartphone VR, it's basically Samsung. Um, so Samsung has this Gear VR thing you get for a hundred bucks. It's actually very good. Um, you know, I've had one for a couple of months now um, that I use with a, a Samsung Galaxy S7 uh, Edge. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a great experience for what it's worth, you know, and it's a great sort of first introduction to virtual reality. If you already have one of these Samsung phones, it's 100 bucks, and, and suddenly you have a VR experience. And my kids have tried it. My wife's tried it. You know, um, the kids, when I, when I first had them try it, you know, always asking when could they do it again. You know, it's a really fun, truly immersive experience. It's, it's surprisingly so given, you know, how, how basic the, the hardware is here. Uh, the challenge is it's all owned by Samsung, and, and yes, Oculus is part of that as well. But um, you know, it's a when it comes to Android, it's a Samsung exclusive thing, and most of the other Android vendors aren't going to make that kind of scale of investment in VR. Obviously, HTC is an exception; they've got their Vive headset that's entirely separate from what they do with phones. Um, but you know, the other big Android manufacturers aren't going to make that kind of investment themselves, and so. What Daydream does is basically say, instead of having this be a Samsung thing, let's have it be an Android thing, we'll do all the hard work for you in terms of designing specs for the smartphone, for uh, headsets, for controllers. Uh, Google's going to make its own headset and controller, uh, and obviously Google makes its own Nexus devices as well, or at least uh, commissions them. And so Google's going to be a participant in this, but they're trying to make it an Android VR experience rather than uh, a Samsung-only experience. And that obviously increases the addressable market. It provides opportunities for other smartphone makers to just make hardware based on the specs and so on that can go with their devices. Uh, and it creates opportunities, frankly, for others as well. I mean, I, I've been talking to Microsoft a little bit about what they could be doing here. Obviously, they've got their HoloLens kind of augmented reality story, but it's a much too kind of expensive and high-end for, for mass market adoption. I think what Microsoft should be focusing on is creating headsets and so on for other platforms, and notably Android uh, at the moment, potentially iOS as well. Uh, and this, you know, creates an opening for them to do that. Um, you know, you could bring the Xbox brand to it. You could do some really interesting stuff there. Um, so it creates a bunch of opportunities for others. I think it's always interesting that Google feels the need to compete then still in that space by making its own hardware as well. Uh, but, you know, Daydream could be really interesting. It, it looks like it's been very well thought through. Uh, Google brings some really interesting skills to bear on this problem. Um, and so I think, you know, over time, and it is going to take quite some time because none of the phones out there are Daydream compatible right now. So it will take at least until the fall before we start to see some flagship phones that actually can support Daydream. So it's going to be a multi-year effort. But, you know, eventually I think this could expand the market for uh, smartphone uh, VR quite considerably. You know, your comment about Microsoft and making headsets for other platforms just now made me wonder why we haven't seen more of a push from a third-party vendor, a more substantial push from a third-party vendor on iOS. Mm -hmm. I mean, it feels like the developer tools and developer access are sufficient right now for somebody to do a VR product for iOS. 
mm-hmm. you know, I think VR has a lot of exciting potential in living rooms as a shared experience. You know, and and not just meaning you watch a movie together, but that you get to play, you get a game together in a VR right. kind of world. I think that seems really exciting. Um, but and I guess I'm wondering now why hasn't that why 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 hasn't anybody stepped up in the iOS you know yeah. platform to do a, a significant VR push yet? Maybe it's just because we're still at the really early days, but mm-hmm. but it you know. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a lock that Apple's going to be the one to do it. Yeah, so. I wonder though if if it's people's concerns that if Apple ever does decide to do it, then whoever else might be doing it gets squashed, basically. Um, so maybe holding some people back. I think to, sure. you know, there are obviously a lot of sensors in the iPhone already. There's things like cardboard. There's a, I think a ViewMaster device and a couple of others that work with the iPhone for VR. So there are devices out there, but it's tough when when the device hasn't been optimized for the use case there are limits to what you can do and I wonder if that's to some extent holding things back too yeah. and obviously Apple would have to make the decision to, to to better serve those and you know what we saw a number of years ago was Apple uh, opening up for example notifications and things like that in such a way that uh, it opened the door for smartwatches and several years later Apple came in with the Apple Watch but in the meantime it enabled things like Pebble and, and Fitbits right. and so on and so it may well be that Apple's first step in VR is, you know, either this year or maybe next year at WW, excuse me, WWDC announcing, okay, the iPhone now has these new sensors and does this other stuff that enables third-party VR devices. And then two, three years down the line, you suddenly see Apple VR. It does seem um, like that could be one way it goes. It does seem like their mobile chip design prowess sets them up to do well. Yeah. Using you know iPhones as a as a VR platform, a VR device, but mm-hmm. yeah, there's still a lot of missing pieces, like you were saying. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one other thing um, that was announced during the keynote was uh, Android Wear enhancements. I think that was striking just for how incremental it felt. You know, there were bits and pieces here and there. I think the only thing that was really notable was that. Android Wear devices will now be completely independent in terms of the apps. So because some of these devices have their own connectivity, including cellular connectivity, they can now be completely independent from the smartphone and use Wi-Fi or cellular or Bluetooth uh, separate. You know, even if the phone is switched off, the apps run on the device and so on. And so as part of that, it obviously mirrors, um, you know, the native apps in watchOS 2, but the connectivity piece is different. Um, and that's one big thing that obviously the Apple Watch will do in the next few years, and it's a question of timing as to whether some of that arrives in the fall or not. But it's, you know, uh, an area where the Apple Watch is, is now behind, I think, and, and needs to do better. I still think better processes and, and so on are, are the key to really improving the app situation on the watch, but it's interesting to see Android Wear doing that. But there's just a sense of Android Wear is kind of plodding along where it is. It's not some huge success. and continues to make incremental improvements, none of which I think will really move the needle very much, um, wasn't a major focus in general at, at I.O., which was interesting in and of itself. Yeah, I agree. I mean, smartwatches are so early still. The problem is that there need to be improvements both on the iOS side across the board as well as on the hardware side. And I think there's a lot of product design that still needs to improve on you know the hardware both in terms of the you know speed and power, battery efficiency right. of the devices, but also fit and finish and style. You know, there's still a lot of ugly Android Wear devices out there that you know. Well, I, I say ugly because they don't appeal to me, but mm-hmm. but I think they appeal to too small of a market right now. Um, right. 
And I would say even the Apple Watch a little bit. The problem the Apple Watch is going to have is that everybody's looks the same, and and you know watches are part of personal style, and and uh, you know you can have a different finish on it, but it's the same shape, you know, same mm-hmm. same look. You can pick one out of a crowd very easily. Right. And so I don't know. There's a lot ahead on the hardware side in terms of product design that mm-hmm. uh, that, that 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 doesn't give much room for software changes to to make right. much of a difference yeah um one of the last things that was announced at io was and this was kind of announced in a separate sort of press conference on, on the second day was that uh, android apps will now run on chrome os um so um there have been one or two apps that have kind of been optimized and sort of ported over in that way but uh they now the way that chrome os will work going forward Android apps will just basically be able to run there, um, and they're running Windows. They can be re- that can be resized and so on. So they'll act a lot like native applications on Chrome OS, um, and they've done that basically by building a version of Android into Chrome OS, and uh, the app runs there and it sends outputs to the Chrome UI, and then when you uh, click on something or type on the keyboard or whatever, it sends those inputs back to the little Android version that's running there, and so it basically means any Android app can run there. Uh, the challenge, of course, is that you know Chrome OS is is primarily about uh, mouse and keyboard interactions rather than touchscreens. Although there are some touchscreen Chromebooks as well, um, and so obviously the apps will have to work slightly differently and, and and ideally be optimized for those form factors. A big reason why Google's done this, and this again was something that came out of one of these side analyst sessions that I attended, uh, is that. Um, for enterprises, and especially for knowledge workers that rely heavily on specialized enterprise applications, those haven't been ported to Chrome OS. Nobody's bothered to do that. Um, whereas many of them have been ported to Android, and so you just bring the Android port back into Chrome OS again, and suddenly you have access to, you know, the Office applications, for example. You have access to SAP's applications and a bunch of others. And so um, there's. Um, you know, an opportunity there that Google thinks it can kind of break down some of the barriers to adoption within the enterprise by doing this. Uh, obviously, you know, it also just dramatically increases the number of apps available on Chrome OS, even for consumer use as well, which uh, may increase the appeal there slightly. Um, but yeah, I thought that was interesting, um, something that developers are going to have to watch carefully because some of those apps really won't work very well on Chrome OS given that they're designed to be used with touch screens. And so, have to make sure they don't get a bunch of negative reviews from Chrome OS users who don't like the experience. Yeah, but let's be honest, that hasn't stopped Google before. <laughs> I mean, indeed, tablets you know, as, being the obvious example. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as the mobile space has has changed over time with bigger screens, eventually tablets, phablets, like you know, Google hasn't really made much of an effort to ensure you know right sized, right working applications across multiple. Um, across multiple devices and so yeah. I, I think Google's attitude is just well heck let's just open it up and see what people do mm-hmm. and I mean there's there's some appeal to that obviously but you gotta I know there's an extent to which you kind of need to shepherd developers or otherwise you get really subpar uh, customer experiences right. right another interesting thing that came out of that session was I asked a question you know got Chrome OS, you've got Android, and surely at some point these come together, and there have been a lot of reports about that over the last few years. And you know, the response was, yes, obviously we think about that, we talk about it a lot, we don't feel like we're ready to do it yet, you know, these things were designed and optimized for different form factors that have very different requirements, and so 
they need to exist separately for those reasons. But the reality is there's more and more cross-pollination going on. And, uh, you know, this Android apps running on Chrome OS is one example of that. Uh, the way that Chrome OS updates itself in the background and then just you have the new version next time you restart it, that's coming to Android with Android N. Uh, and so there's a lot of that cross-pollination going on. And as that continues to happen, it gets easier and easier to merge these two things eventually. So it, it continues to feel pretty much inevitable that that will happen at some point, even though they're not quite ready to uh, announce that just yet. It's Google's version of Windows everywhere. Well, exactly, yeah. Although the interesting thing is, and this kind of goes to your point about tablets, and another question that somebody asked of Dave Burke, who runs Android in one of these sessions, was, you know, um, to what extent are you thinking about the different form factors that run Android and, and, you know, investing in those separately? And his response was very clear that the vast majority of devices running Android today are smartphones. That market's an order of magnitude bigger than any of the other Android markets, whether it's tablets, whether it's wearables, whether it's TV. So smartphones continues to be where the focus is. And that attitude is obvious if you look at you know how Android performs on tablets and so on. And they've, they've made some modifications in terms of multitasking and so on in Android N. But for the most part, it's indicative. You know They basically are so focused on smartphones that some of the other ailments get neglected to some extent. And, and this is why you know the, the smartphone opportunity is just so much bigger for them compared with you know Apple, where the iPad is a big opportunity in and of itself. And they're very keen to make the Apple Watch into a bigger opportunity too. Well, and I think that's what Apple understands is you have to cultivate these other platforms. You, you know, they're mm -hmm. not going to they're not going to grow totally organically. Right. You have to right. you have to help them go along. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're we're kind of coming up to the hour market, so I think we need to wrap up this episode. I think the other thing that we haven't really talked about a lot that sort of pervaded a lot of what was at I/O was machine learning and artificial intelligence and how important that is to a lot of these efforts, whether it's VR, whether it's Google Assistant, whether it's Allo. You know, it was it was there throughout, and there were some comments from Sundar Pichai towards the end about the investment they're making in specialized chips for this kind of stuff, and also, um, you know, the AlphaGo stuff recently, um, where you know AI made big breakthroughs there. Um, we could go on and on about all of that, but it's clearly an undercurrent to everything that was talked about. It's a major advantage for for Google at the moment. It's clearly something that um, Facebook is investing heavily in as well, and others too. And I think over the next few years, it's going to become clearer and clearer just how important that is as a differentiator. And it's obviously a challenge to Apple as well to continue to try to keep up in an area that's not necessarily been part of their sort of set of skills in the past, uh, but will become increasingly important going forward. Any last comments from you, Aaron, on all that we've talked about? No, I, we're just set up for WWDC now. So yeah, we'll be there yeah. in a couple of weeks. We'll, we'll talk about that in a few weeks' time. But yeah, no, yeah, that'll be very interesting to talk about You know, the differences between these various events that we've been discussing. Right. Okay, well, thanks, Aaron, for being with us again. I'm grateful to have you back again. Thanks to all of you for, for joining us and for listening. Um, you may have heard throughout the episode that I'm struggling with a bit of a cold. I lost my voice this week, and it's, it's mostly back now, but I've been sucking on cough drops throughout the episode, so hopefully you haven't heard too much of that. Uh, but thanks for being with us. Uh, we'll post some links on the website and so on as usual, and we look forward to being with you again next week.